So maybe let's start at roles of the team. Uh, you mentioned there's a release sheriff, a product genie, a responder, a tech lead, a project manager, product owner. You have a lot of roles, actually. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, so, the, my question, do these rotate? Yeah. Are these hats or are these people? Hats. These are hats. And the fact that um, we have so many named roles is probably a testament to our VP of engineering, Ryan. He is really into playbooks. Mm -hmm. So we have for these different roles, we have dedicated pages with that describe the responsibilities, the, the reason for a role, um, what is expected from them. And that, you know, coming back to performance management, that is really helpful, but also to set the tone. And we are iterating on those two. Welcome to Shapers and Builders, the show about better ways to deliver great software products. Today I'm speaking with Heiko Behrens, VP of Product at Memfold, an IoT reliability platform. Before joining Memfold, Heiko has had an impressive career in engineering roles at Pebble Smartwatches, working on augmented reality devices at Intel, and most recently on the Oculus VR headset at Facebook slash Meta. This conversation is part of a series about companies that use ShapeUp, a delivery framework originally created at Basecamp. If you've never heard of ShapeUp, check the show notes for a link to the video Shaping in a Nutshell by Ryan Singer, former head of strategy at Basecamp and author of the book ShapeUp, Stop Running in Circles and Ship Work That Matters. In our conversation, Heiko walks us closely through the product development process at Memfold and how they've adopted and adapted ShapeUp to their liking. What struck me the most was how rigorously Heiko and the team have designed their process, including detailed playbooks for the hats that different people wear at different times. It feels like Heiko and the team are tackling this process design very much like an engineering problem, even keeping a changelog of how the process evolves with each cycle. We get to talk about various tools that the team has developed to, for example, keep track of scopes of work, plan who's available, and manage well-formulated project briefings. Heiko also underscores that it's important to embrace the iteration in how you work and that there's no end state of enlightenment that you're trying to reach. So without further ado, let's get into our conversation. Heiko, I'm very excited to be speaking to you today. Um, you've had quite the illustrious career. Could you briefly take us maybe through the formative steps that led to your role as head of product at Memfold now? Ooh, I've been in the software industry for almost 25 years now, selling software there, making software. I am a programmer by heart, software engineer. And I've done anything from being an individual contributor in small companies, did games, software for tax advisors and lawyers, um, was a consultant for you know financial institutions like the New York Stock Exchange, um, did things such as tooling for programming languages, mobile applications, um, you name it. And then I've been like a software, like an engineering manager, architect, CEO of my own startup once, which failed miserably. And then I moved to the Silicon Valley, um, joining a startup called Pebble Smartwatches. We did um, the first smartwatches before Apple Watch or Android Wear had been there. 
that also failed. And from there, I moved over to Intel, the, the chip manufacturer, where um, some of my former teammates um, joined me over there. And then we built like head-worn embedded devices. And then after that, I went over to Oculus VR headsets. Oculus is um, part of fa former Facebook, now Meta. And when I moved back from the Valley back to Germany, where I'm now, I left Facebook and instead joined friends of mine, um, in their startup, Memfold. What, what do you all do? Um, can you talk a bit about how big is the team? How long has the company existed? What's life cycle right. stage are you in? Right. I looked up those numbers to be prepared for it um, because <laughs> that changes um, continuously. We are hiring, shameless plug. And um, so I had to look up the numbers of the week. When I joined, um, we were in total 14. That's one, four people with eight engineers. So pretty heavy. Um, mm -hmm. And then I would separate that into non-ICs, non-individual contributors at the point that was our CTO. Um, and then the rest was product engineering. I must say that our product, it's a uh, SaaS web application, but mm -hmm. it's not the traditional stack. It's fairly um, diverse in its tech stack because we are doing three major functions for the embedded world. And in order for to do that, we have to have an on-device agent. So it's not just a web backend and web frontend. We have to have code that runs on these teeny tiny, very constrained devices. And that leads us to the need of an SDK for super small scale microcontrollers that have kilobytes of RAM and code space over Android AOSP with megabytes of space, sometimes even gigabytes. And then a third mm. category, which we recently started to um, support is embedded Linux. So our team needs to be able to understand these stacks to talk directly or indirectly to our backend. We have companies that run like scientific drones in the Pacific talking to um, us via Iridium satellite uplink with like very low bandwidth. And then we have other um, companies that have continuous internet connection because it's an embedded Linux device on the, on the ethernet. And uh, that all talks to the backend. Backend is really um, challenging because we have these millions of devices continuously talking to us. So we have not the usual setup where you have, you know, a Postgres SQL database to query whatever you want that just doesn't work. And then on top of that, ultimately, that comes like, you know, an API surface and web frontend. So all of this had been built with these eight people or seven at the time. And then I joined um, as the first product person dedicated to product. And what I didn't tell you in my intro was, I've not been a product manager in my entire career. This is the first time I was doing this. It was scary, but um, when I was um, uh, considering new jobs, two former friends of mine and CEOs of two different startups independently asked me if I wanted to be their like, product person, both very technical products. And, and then I read up a little bit, consulted my network and asked other um, product people um, if that if they would consider me to be a product person and they always saw me like that and that was interesting i certainly can relate to our target audience i formerly was one of ours 
Um, but I, I clearly was lacking experience in the actual doing. The, the tool belt uh, was just not there, unlike software engineering, of course. You did mention you founded your own company, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you were the CEO and you were kind of thinking about product. There of course. And so product thinking was always top of my mind, even uh, in my other functions, you know, as a tech lead or, or architect or when you are uh, maintaining an SDK for um, a, like, a product with a substantial user base you clearly think with product in mind but for example like if i say rice here every pm mm -hmm. will immediately know what that means i didn't know at the time Not I, I mean roughly <laughs> i mean i mean if you if you if you talk i mean i mean it's I, oh yeah, and I studied business administration next to computer science, so sure, I have like a business background. And if I had, as an engineer, heard about Rice, I would have thought, um, this is so obvious, why do you even care? And yes, many of these tools are obvious if you think about it, but having common language and um, shared experiences on top of um, the same methods uh, goes a long way. So like having tools and frameworks are really um, liberating, I find, and not so much narrowing your your um, abilities to act. Anyway, yeah. you asked me about company size, and I, I think that is today. So today we are, that's two years later, grew from 14 to 47 as of this week, and we are still hiring, and we are very ambitious. Did I tell you that we are hiring? We have ambitious <laughs> hiring goals across the board, including our product team. Engineering um, is 16 people now, and I would contrib uh, uh, split this differently now. Non-IC, so that's founders and management. We now have management uh, level here, is four people. And then we split our engineering team. And I'm sure we will get to this later in the conversation, but we, we started with a very homogeneous perspective of our engineering, and now we split this into solutioning and DevEx engineers that directly interact with our customers who are also engineers our solution needs to be integrated into their product that's five we split off a platform team as um, one of our many learnings um, when we, after we introduced shape up that platform team consists currently of three people and because of like different circumstances we are down to four product engineering people that is nothing. This is like much smaller than what we started off with, especially if you consider that our product team now contains two people, not just me, but another very talented um, product manager. Um, so in total, this is like 18 people involved in engineering, but depending how you're looking at it, um, only four engineers actually being doing product engineering. We this is the four is the area where we had like a larger number in the past, of course, where we are hiring um, the most aggressively because um, the number of these people determines how many builder projects we can run in parallel. Mm -hmm. And the kind of downsizing to four, is that a temporary thing? Is that a result of anything in particular? Oh, yeah, that is a result of like many learnings. I think two major factors contributed to this. Um, we had to let go of people in the most recent past um, who were not um, uh, working well with this mode where um, you are a builder and responsible um, by yourself. The learnings we took is that we need to hire um, with that entrepreneurial um, mind and, and, and um, pragmatic perspective in mind. We are also focusing on very senior people these days. 
And um, I have a long list of flaws I see in ShapeUp. And I think this is maybe not a flaw, but an implication. You need to um, have a team that is compatible with it. And the other one is we separated that platform team. And that is, in turn, also a learning. Um, and it, maybe it's also entangled. Our tech stack is, as I mentioned, fairly complex. And so it, it requires um, breadth to fully understand how to work on a particular area, in an area, on a feature. And so the platform team's goal is to simplify certain areas, document them better, um, putting in place um, safeguards. But also, most recently, the platform team is helping us to evaluate and explore technical feasibility before so you can see this as either shaping or pre-shaping before we even start a project so that there are fewer unknowns before we start a project. And then last not least, the platform team is there to support the builder team. So they are not completely off the chart, but they are not within the people we can draw from when we produce what we call a cycle plan. Yeah. Yeah, cool. And we'll get into kind of detail on, on all of these things, um, but it's good to have the phrases out there uh, to draw um, draw upon them. Cool. Um, I think this is a good time to kind of transition a bit into talking about ShapeUp. And to kick things off there, I wanted to ask you, how did you get into ShapeUp? What were your first encounters with it? And what was your initial reaction to it? Yeah. So as I said, I'm doing this for a while. When I started, there was no Scrum. And uh, and then in the most recent years, I would say in the past 10 years, Scrum was everywhere and Agile, Agile methodologies. And that, that could either be Kanban or Scrum. What I noticed is that oftentimes that was uh, an ever-growing backlog of tickets that were at least at the top of that um, pile of, of tickets, roughly stack ranked by priority. And then you had various forms of grooming meetings where tech leads um, or knowledgeable engineers in certain areas plus PM, and then maybe sometimes stakeholders were trying to assess what to work on next. And then there are various boards, sometimes one board, sometimes topic-oriented boards, and you would push them from the left onto the board, do very detailed explanation of the tickets to a facilitated handover and then handoff and then an estimation, bottom-up estimation. And then, of course, like you have velocity, aim for so many tickets, and then at the end, half of it at best gets done because priorities changes over time and estimations are off and very frustrating. And that's roughly where Mempod was before I joined. No surprise here. I mean, this is how many companies I'm aware of are operating right now. And some are better at it, um, but that's not because of process, but because of their past experience and um, individual um, talent um, at it. And then uh, when I joined, um, I you know I know the team for a long time. Uh, so the founders are actually ex-Pebblers, and um, I was even there when we had been discussing whether or not to create a company out of this idea of building a, a IoT reliability platform as we do now with Memfold. I didn't want to join the startup at the time, but I was involved very early in all of this, and and then later joined two years after it um, it was around. And at the time. Most, if not all, of the engineers were ex-Pebblers and people I, I worked with. And one person who actually introduced ShapeUp to the company, Fausto, he he was not an ex-Pebbler. And so he was very fond of ShapeUp and he introduced me to this book. So I read the book 
uh, I have the book here and um, I was basically laughing at it, you know, arrogant engineering perspective, eh, nothing new here hill charts this is just a glorified progress bar who needs that like vertical bump and who knows needs this like potato shaped scope maps and like all of it is basically just um more fluff than um some you know real like usable advice and then uh a few things really helped me here and i'm not sure i'm not sure how i got to this but what i realized later is that um i really liked time boxing time boxing and then the circuit breaker mm -hmm. i like the idea of um, not managing individual projects independently but rather having cycle boundaries because it would allow me and i'm not sure this has been said in the shape up book but what i wanted to introduce is the ability to rearrange team constellations based on the projects mm -hmm. and if you have circle uh, cycle boundaries um, it is ensured that everybody becomes available at the start of the next cycle i found this really um intriguing and then the reason why the team had introduced this was desperation like being desperate but also they wanted the engineers wanted autonomy and that is a two-edged sword i think it works kind of in our world because our target audiences are primarily engineers so engineers have customer empathy but to this date we don't have a single product designer <clears throat> we are hiring and uh, it is all on the engineers and um but i i could see that this would happen regardless with or without shape up and why not embracing it so when i joined the first ever shape up cycle was um just like it just had started and it, it it was a disaster like i think with these let me look at my numbers um eight people in total let's say seven people um they were all like running in circles i think we had as many projects scheduled for this first cycle as there were people and like nothing got complete and it was a disaster but um it set the stage and then from there we continued and oh yeah i have like even more concerns about shape up should i should i drop them just here or like how, how do you want to there will be space definitely to explore <laughs> kind of the faults. So I think to structure the conversation, mm. I would say, let's talk about what you have, what you learned, how you iterated, and then where you are now, and then talk about what kind of what still standing issues you have with it. Okay, so we do have a backlog of no, it's actually a change log. I can pull this up real quick. I, I won't share the actual details, but I can scroll through it. Um, so what we maintain from circle one is a change log of all the things we were changing. And we, we tried things out. We learned they were better or worse and then um, moved uh, back. So what entry are you on in the, in the change log? Uh, we are at B18. That is a builder cycle 18. So first of all, the observations I made even before um, we started cycle two was that this was unrealistic as a... Um, we are still a startup and maybe if you have a very mature product um what what is being said in the product uh, book is true but like the idea that bugs are nothing special and you can wait um for six weeks until um, you address them is not working um period yeah. um we have constant fires everywhere and uh, something simply cannot wait for six weeks so we needed a way to address them earlier at the same time i really value the idea of uninterrupted 
thinking, deep thinking time uh, as a former engineer. Um, so what I introduced is the rule of a, what I call a responder. It was like inspired by first responder. And mm-hmm. um, so um, they, they are there for emergencies. And the responder's goal is to shield builders from anything that happens uh, unpredictably. And so they of sit outside of the cycle teams. Yes. So, um, well, I mean, they are part of the cycle plan. So what we do before each cycle is we create what we call a cycle plan. Uh, that that actually that materialized much later. We realized that people were not always sure what was going on because we were reshuffling um, team constellation to best meet the requirements of each builder project. And and so like what we introduced is this artifact called a cycle plan that is usually ready the week before the cycle starts, sometimes uh, earlier. And there, think of it as a it's basically a calendar. Um, you have horizontally the weeks of the cycle, and then each row is either a project for the builder projects or um, the individuals, if you have different other functions. And then to the right, it's either a large bar depicting a project, or if it's individuals also when they are out, vacation time or anything, or what other roles they have. We have since then introduced roles such as the release sheriff, shepherding along releases, or product genie uh, who helps our um, customer success team with product related questions that basically the traditional term for this is probably sales engineer and um, that is like that schedule on call that that is all like visible there for the um, coming cycle Um, and then we use that as a communication tool Um, how did we get there it's I was asking if the, uh, oh, the outside of the cycle. if they sit yeah. outside of the projects, I guess. Well, yeah, outside the project, we still see them as part of the cycle. Um, and we deliberately put them either like down to that responder um, role or in one particular project. Deciding who should work on a particular project is a delicate um, exercise. Many... Um, um, inputs go into that decision-making process. Um, And it's not what you might think as in first and foremost skills. It's not just like who knows um, the um, problem space the best to work on a particular project. It's also um, another thing we introduced are formal roles. Um, We have the role of a tech lead within a builder team, the one person who ultimately like shepherds along the other engineers and um, makes like critical decisions is Uh, the person talking to other stakeholders. We have the project manager also coming from engineering, which is sometimes tough, but we learned, we also tried it not um, being from engineers, but um, we learned that you need to have like deep knowledge about the daily circumstances of the engineer who sometimes is stuck and everything in order to do um, very detailed management. And then a third role we have in each project is um, provided by product, which is the product owner. Um, and their role is to answer questions about value uh, for, uh, and and like if there are certain alternatives, um, assess which one is a better compromise from customer's perspective, not so much effort or timing, but really this. And they also help the builder team gathering additional information with like if absent, if it wasn't present in the pitch, um, during the during the project to basically shield the builders further. So I think, yeah, many of these learnings went into how do we best allow builders to focus on their projects? 
Timing is another thing. We went from six weeks to, hey, let's have projects of different sizes. We call them, or is that part of the book? Like small batch, big batch? Yeah. Is that part of the mm -hmm. Yeah. So like we, yeah. we discarded that in the end. We went down to four weeks. We are now at five weeks. This is not because six weeks is the magical number or anything. It kind of is. I think like we need at least four weeks. Mm -hmm. But we also learned that... We are a product company, after all, and other functions such as sales and marketing needs to be aligned. And what we are doing right now is a five plus one, um, one being one week of cooldown. We also had like two weeks of cooldown in between. Um, so that if you put two of these together, you have a full quarter. That doesn't quite line up. You need one extra week. So we have every other cycle, we have two weeks of no builder cycle. And that is usually when we schedule a, an offsite or something as well. Um, but yeah, this is coming up. The next cooldown at the end of this quarter is going to be two weeks um, where we are again meeting in Berlin and um, not only work on stuff we otherwise don't get to, but like discuss um, long-term perspective and, and, and anything else that you do better in person. I would say let's now talk about the main pillars of your adoption of ShapeUp today. And I want to break this down into the parts that the book kind of uh, has, which are shaping, betting, and building, if that still makes sense for your context. Yeah, it does. So shaping. Uh, shaping. We still have pitches. We Oh, that's also one of the first things I changed. I found the pitches to be too um, disconnected from the business. So um, our template includes business-related items as um, um, what's the value of this. And I don't mean, I, all of this is from the perspective of Memfault. You might be tempted to declare the value as an, oh, after this feature is there, the customer can use the feature. Well, mm -hmm. Um, well, you, that's of course, like a, um, a tautology, you then sometimes say, well, happiness increases, cool. But then like how you need something that is, uh, makes pitches comparable to other pitches. And the reason is I sometimes got the impression from the book that this is very ivory tower rich. Um, a few distinguished people get into a room and then come out with a decision. What we do instead is we we discuss this fairly uh, in the open. Ultimately, it's on me to decide what to work on, but um, I want people to understand the decision-making behind it. And for this to be transparent, um, I put business value out of it. And that includes what, what's the value of it. And then very important, why is it important? Well, in a startup, everything is important, but then combined with why is it urgent? Why do we need to put out this particular fire right now? Why can it not wait another six weeks? And if you are really diligent about that, I would echo what has been said in the book. It's yes, many things can actually wait for six weeks, these planable things. Um, there are always customers who uh, yell the loudest at you or um, are at the verge of um, churning or whatever. But like ultimately, most things can wait another cycle. And now it's you look at things in value, importance, and urgency before even looking at the solution. And so that enables a lot of people to contribute to the shaping process. You can now suddenly pull in customer success and sales into the craft of creating pitches. And that's what we do. 
I must admit that the full pitch, I've never seen a full pitch exclusively being written um, by anyone without the help of product. But we have one very successful um, pitch, improving our demo data for our sales reps. Like they are during sales conversations, we have a demo instance of our product and they want to show um, or like use the product to support a certain narrative. And the demo data we had was not cohesive in that narrative. So we had to have particularly designed demo data on our product. And that was done um, with our, like with, with sales and um, together with product and is a huge success. Uh, it's not really directly a feature in our product, but ultimately creates value in the company. And I, and this, this distinction to me is very important. Product is not just there to crank out features. It's there to improve company value uh, as a whole. So making that separation is important and then shaping everybody in the company is invited to do uh, pitching. Technical solutioning mostly comes uh, from engineering or product. I'm trying to hire technical um, product managers who can also do solutioning at a fairly technical level. And we are hiring. And um, yeah, so that leads to oftentimes the, the upper part of the pitch being contributed by others, but then solutioning ultimately um, product. I was going to ask you on mm -hmm. uh, on that um, because I I've read a bunch of case studies on ShapeUp where teams are saying pitches can come from anywhere, but rarely have I myself personally seen this happen. Mm -hmm. Did you do like did you train the other teams in any particular way to to enable them to kind of break down this barrier? Yeah. So what we do is yes, um, I think um, a few. A few weeks after I initially joined, I ran a company-wide uh, workshop as part of our offsite. Everybody in the company was involved in, you know, taking a step at pitches. Um, we tried this on and off. So I think maybe in total, we tried like three or four instances where people were strongly encouraged to contribute pitches. Um, I would say that this was not the main facilitator. Instead, what we instantiated um, is what I call now a shaping meeting. It's a weekly meeting where I pull in the different um, functions of the company. So that is um, a standing meeting where I have um, customer success, uh, sales, uh, engineering, um, CTO, formerly also um, our CEO, but he's not part of it anymore and then myself. And that is mostly to get perspective on things from these different angles. I want to call out that marketing is not part of it. Maybe we change that in the future. Um, too many cooks is also a problem. Mm -hmm. But then this is primarily at the beginning of each new shaping cycle, um, a way for me to get a fresh perspective on things. But what it also means is that um, these people don't think like on a daily basis and pitches and products and, and projects on anything, but rather they have like all these learnings and concerns. And now you funnel that into digestible um, clusters and say, you know, that would be a good pitch candidate. And, and now it's their motivation to somehow get to such a pitch. And I think from all of the engineering certainly contributes sales, as I mentioned, um, demo data, for example, but then also especially customer success. Andy, she's leading our like customer success team, is really behind the idea of pitches as a tool to get um, uh, traction uh, for, for her team. 
and and then she delegates that to to her team and ultimately at the very least they come up with that top part and especially and we also pull in customer success um basically for every pitch to justify the importance and and validate the urgency um so i would say it has been planted as a successful idea. People realized that um, this structure really helped us getting away from this running in circles, constant firefighting, which took us roughly six months after I joined. They saw that we could really um, deliver things with this tool. And I think it's to the leadership of the company um, recognizing this and then carrying it back to their respective teams. And also the value of the the standing meeting, I think, just keeps it top of mind and yeah, integrates yeah, yeah. everybody into this process, right? So that's Honor. also different from the media, from the book. We didn't have this right away. I, I don't know exactly when we introduced this, but the standing meeting is basically a um, it converges towards the betting table. The betting table is the last, so to speak, um, meeting of a giving shaping cycle. It's not just a singular event. What happens is that we have um, for each new cycle, uh, we have one notion page where we are discussing that there's like a standard template for the first opening meeting. Like, let's get together. Let's collect everything. Is everything still where we think it is? Did we learn anything? Is anything like urgent to force us to think about it? Of course, that can happen at any time. And then that uh, produces pitch candidates or pulls pitches out of our <clears throat> pitch backlog. We have a backlog of pitches and put it onto um, it's basically uh, yeah, a, another board of potential of pitch candidates for a given cycle. And then it's a function of how much um, time do we find to flesh out and shape the pitches, which is indirectly a measure of, is it really that important? And also availability of people and um, steadily we narrow down how, which pitches will ultimately make it. Um, and we use this time uh, of discovery to also go back to the platform team, for example, to inform, inform technical feasibility or customer success, going back to customers to understand urgency better. And then ultimately, I think this way we have really well-informed um, data um, when we finally place our bets. But I must say that the betting table is fairly uneventful. At this point, it's almost always already decided, at least like informally. And another uh, point of awareness, we do have a company meeting, uh, a weekly all hands, where I report on not only the current builder projects and, and their progress, but also what we currently think of for the upcoming cycle so that people are aware. Interesting. So the those weekly meetings, they aren't the same agenda every time, but it, what you talk about depends on the life cycle of where you are towards the next, starting the next cycle. Yeah, there are like always goals as in um, uh, we need to have um, locked down um, the like candidates by this week. So, and then like to drive some urgency. There are, there is this, limbo state of the first weeks of a builder cycle where nobody really feels urgency to work on these pitches um and so you need to like you know drive this a little bit and how where do you pull the resources from when you have a pitch coming from customer success 
um, to help them go into the solution. And so I imagine, you know, they are very strong in filling out, as you mentioned, the top part about the problem, the value and the urgency, the importance. Um, and then in the first one or two weeks of the ongoing cycle, I assume you then kind of say, okay, this is something where we feel like we, we can push for a solution and shape a solution so we can bet on it next time. How, where do you pull those resources from to get to the technical solution? So customer success, as I said, is very motivated. Um, they have access to our DevEx and solutioning team anyway. And um, they oftentimes um, present pitches that are directly informed from particular uh, recurring customer need. And those um, uh, engineers have the skill to write out at least the solution at the boundary to the customer. That is not complete, but at least it's a starting point. And then uh, we use um, like product management time uh, to do the refinement and everything. The fact that these pitches are incrementally and openly uh, written is also allowing us to pull in, to ask for feedback early on. So honestly, oftentimes pitches are not ready weeks before, but only days before, but at least rough structure is there. And then we ask oftentimes either the platform team, like the most knowledgeable um, engineers or the engineers we foresee working on these pitches in the end to give early feedback and to socialize these ideas. And then you refine. I think almost always it's ultimately a product uh, doing the final solutioning before we Oh, and We also had cases where the pitch wasn't even ready and we stood bet on it. But it's um, ultimately it's ready before the kickoff. Like a kickoff is where um, you go through the entire. Again, we have a template for this as well, like the, the kickoff meeting. But it's ultimately deciding on these roles and the team, and then um, going through the pitch. You, they have done this asynchronously before. Uh, collecting, answering all the questions that can be answered immediately, but leaving with a set of questions we need to circle back on so that we can start with scoping. I feel that we are already going into the scoping. I want to say one more thing about the shaping phase. Um, cycle plan is absolutely important. The cycle plan informs the betting table and vice versa. This is really entangled and um, our we had a recent inflation and titles because we are a startup and we are growing. Um, VP of engineering, I'm actually not head of product, I'm actually VP of product. Um, we had this ongoing debate about um, what comes first, betting, placed bets or cycle plan. I always wanted availability and preferences of team members to inform what bets to place, how to staff these projects, and then ideally even know so early that I could know what to, where to invest the most time shaping time on. So that is, uh, and then ultimately it is, it is a mix. It is um, very entangled, but this um, cycle plan really helps uh, as a communication tool. And it's crucial for engineering because we use, like in an organization, you always need to do performance management and evaluating um, how somebody performs, but also if you have new people, how to onboard them. Um, if people, if engineers want to extend their skills, um, where to put them and with this very dynamic concept of shape up, you need, um, something that accounts for that too. 
And um, the cycle plan and the, the close discussion with um, our VP of engineering is um, the tool to allow for that. Interesting. I did want to um, ask you one thing about betting that maybe takes mm -hmm. us a bit off the rails, but I'm still going to do it. Um, because you you leaned so heavily on the aspect of urgency as part of the decision criteria that you have. And I wonder how you balance that with kind of a more long-term view yeah. on where you want to take the product. Yeah, one of the many flaws of ShapeUp. It doesn't have an answer to that, right? Like, what about roadmap? Um, what about tasks that don't fit in just a single cycle. What about tasks where you have one-way decisions? Not like clearly ShapeUp comes from a front-end heavy product team where you don't have long-lasting contracts and humans, the, the end users are very um, um, forgiving when it comes to changes every other cycle. We have a product where our SDK runs on these millions of embedded devices with an SDK that is only updated every so often. So some design decisions are very hard to correct. You need proper planning, and that is not really specific to ShapeUp. It's more agile methodology in general. But like these are all problems that ShapeUp has no real answer for. So roadmap. I am... Um, not a big proponent of roadmaps in general, at least not in the classical sense, where you predict uh, delivery dates of features. Um, that's very much against the idea of an, like, a, an agile company. If you have found product market fit and you have um, like government contracts, sure. Um, I think we have roughly product market fit for um, our initial set of features, but still there are so many obvious and undiscovered things. It's about when to deliver them. And I don't want to make commitments because that um, narrows down our options. I totally recognize that marketing and sales depend on this to make promises, but we try to not make promises. So that's roadmap. We have a substitute, which I call river system. It's actually not so much a one-dimensional thing or like multiple lanes. It's more, you know, to talk in mathematical terms, it's like an acyclic uh, directed graph of um, features. Like things depend on other things. You need to ship something in a certain order. They are not just on a one axis, but you need at least these three things lead to this one. And then it enables certain other things. That allows us to understand roughly um like uh, several things first in which order have, do we have to do something what is on the horizon to give perspective and direction but also sometimes we had a goal last year where we wanted to ship our linux sdk you can work backwards and see we actually need three cycles to get to that um, if we want to get it done we need to have the first one now and that that actually happened uh, to drive urgency in the at the betting table we said okay so like this is a given we have to have this because otherwise we won't get this done. It's not strictly a roadmap, but it's, it's helping for this perspective thing. We also have larger topics where we know early on that this is not going to be doable in a single cycle. And there it's, yeah, I think I always wrote those. Um, it's basically a more like an aspirational design doc where I'm describing a solution, how it could be in roughly a year, 
and then people review it as it as, as, as we do this at, at Bemfold with RFCs and and they, they look at it as if it was a like real project description but it is not it's a source to draw pitches from and this allows us to pick from the larger description depending on the current needs and immediate value without losing that like longer term perspective so we have one feature that led to, I would say, three, yeah, I think three projects in total. And we have another one, which we call fleet sampling. Interesting thing. I think you will find it if you Google uh, Memphold and fleet sampling. It's really unique to our product. But um, John, our like PM, uh, he said, it's probably the eighth project now we do around fleet sampling. Is that a smell? And I don't think that's a smell. I think, so what we don't do is doing one of these um, projects one after another, but rather we have perspective and we decide again after each um, cycle what to work on next. And more often than not, it's really surprising to me and people who have done ShapeUp for a while probably have noticed this too. Something like a close contender, like the third project we didn't get to in one cycle, isn't necessarily even on the table the next time. And, and um, that here, translating to this aspirational design doc, oftentimes means that you have one cycle working on it, and then there's a cycle without working on it, and maybe another one, and then two consecutive ones. And it really depends on the immediate value and market situation that informs when to work on it. But the aspirational document gives you the perspective so that each individual pitch is not in isolation. Is there one more? Yeah, we have um, our pitches. Sometimes we are lazy and we do this backwards. In our solution, we sometimes um, add stretch items, knowing that we most likely won't get to it. And then we haven't talked about building yet. Uh, we will be terribly out of time here. Um, <laughs> building uh, has one artifact at the end, which we call a project debrief, where the team themselves describes what they have accomplished how much of this is immediately adding really value. Um, they jotting down the known uh, limitations. And then there's a section planned work like that we committed to work on that's usually cool down, you know, the last few things, or we sometimes bargain, sometimes bargain with future responders or the platform team. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Cycle Plan, to have that ability, like to open up that possibility. And then we have possible like future steps. And that is basically direct input for future pitches. And then the future pitch doesn't necessarily need to be in the next cycle, refers back to this one and also gives perspective. Interesting. So yeah, I think these are our tools for this, I guess. Hey, I hope you're enjoying the conversation. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and to let you know about the Shapers and Builders job board. On shapers.builders, yes, that's the domain, You'll find jobs in software development, design, product management, and other roles at companies that work with ShapeUp. Many of these roles are remote, and teams who use ShapeUp generally run at a more sustainable, healthy, and meaningful pace than the hamster wheel of two-week sprints. So if you're looking for a job in tech or trying to find great people, head over to the Shapers and Builders job board at shapers.builders. Now let's turn back to the conversation. Let's talk about building. 
And okay. we've covered a lot of ground. So I think we can speed through some of these. Um, what I did want to talk to you about was the roles on the team. And you've mm -hmm. kind of given an overview. Uh, stretch scopes I have here I wanted to talk about. Then the circuit mm -hmm. breaker for sure, because this uh, takes guts. And I want to hear your perspective on it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then maybe whatever other tweaks you have, whatever hacks you found um, yeah. on the building side. So maybe let's start at roles of the team. Uh, you mentioned there's a release sheriff, a product genie, a responder, a tech lead, a project manager, product owner. You have a lot of roles, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, so, the, my question, do these rotate? Yeah. Are these hats or are these people? Hats. These are hats. And the fact that um, we have so many named roles it is probably a testament to our vp of engineering ryan he is really into playbooks mm -hmm. so we have for these different roles we have dedicated pages with that describe the responsibilities the the reason for a role um what is expected from them and that you know coming back to performance management that is really helpful but also to set the tone and we are iterating on those two um so the responder um we can maybe take this out, but like the responder is basically working off of um, a Kanban board um, to work on the most recent um, discovered, very urgent things that cannot wait. And then there is also downtime where um, we have planned work, you know, this traditional backlog of things mm -hmm. that are not quite large enough to justify a builder project. And so this is managed um, by product not during cooldown during cooldown the board is owned by the platform team because it's meant to work on technical stuff um, and improve the situation so like ownerships uh, toggles uh, this for this one week and so we have this um, one lane that's called a uh, top top lane that says like like drop everything else we need to work on this now and then every um, but other than that we try to have only 10 kanban board like 10 active um, tickets and then people can choose from it we have the builder, and then within the builder, we have um, the tech lead, the project manager, and then product owner. Owner is coming extra from the outside from product. Tech lead is um, responsible for all technical decisions um, when there are like two ways to, to do something. They need to have the foresight to not dig yourself in a corner, for example. I mean, that's ultimately, you have that in every team, I think. Mm -hmm. And no matter if shape up or not. And then um, the project manager is interesting because there is this what to ship and when. So in our playbook, we say we want one shipped scope uh, within the first two weeks. We call that the unambitious scope. And that is try to um, drive the idea of shipping incrementally. We totally recognize that there's often a discovery phase at the beginning of each um, project. So you need to be really unambitious uh, with this scope um, to ship anything. And um, mm -hmm. doing all of this, deciding what to work on, who to work on this, that's the uh, responsibility of the project manager. And of course, you need to have like deep technical understanding and also understanding of the skill set of the people you have there on the team and so forth. To help with that, we abandoned like, first of all, these potato, like here, cover of the book, like these, mm -hmm. these maps, I think, are not 100% useless. What I like about it is two things. The circumference shows it as a closed problem. 
the closed problem space. And then also there is no overlap. I really like that. So like what you work on is um, by itself complete. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you have, you know, we have a time at the end, you polish everything, but um, ultimately I like that. And then thinking of it as a vertical slice, like this is truly shippable. Um, that I like about this, but otherwise I think this is fairly useless. What um, helps really to drive that project management discussion is dependency. Like again, within a project, you oftentimes have, we do this first. I'm not talking back end, front end. I'm talking this deep vertical thing. And then it makes sense to do either of these two. Now, if it's either of the two, what to, how to decide to work on it? Well, you could say always the one with less effort, or you say, maybe it's the most value, but then what is more valuable? And this is where um, the product owner role comes in and the project management ultimately decides. So what we settled on is a two-dimensional representation of these scopes, um, showing them as um, blobs by, them, by themselves, but not within this potato, but rather um, as you know, a dependency graph. And then we have two axes, one to the bottom, like top down is time. This is what we intend to work on. And then left to right is the value each presumed shipped scope brings. And the PM helps um, deciding what adds value and only the engineering team really knows the effort. And then we are trying to find alternatives. Well, if this is so valuable, but so late, can we do something? You really see that, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, we do all these things and almost none of them add value. Only this one last thing adds value. How can we somehow maybe split this or do anything to get to value earlier? And this visualization really makes this obvious. So that's why these roles are so important because um, the, the the timing and the dependencies really comes from within the builders and the value comes from the outside and the, the product owner. So that's what you call enhanced scope maps, right? Yes. That's, yeah, I shared for the audience, I shared notes with David beforehand. Let me actually go through those. Um, no overlap. Yeah, that's what I like. But top down, left, right, skip, loop. Uh, yes, it's really blobs with arrows in between. Engineers tend to think in dependencies regardless, but they oftentimes um, don't think in scopes as individually shippable features. So engineers would like to do the foundational work uh, that by itself has no value. And then you really need to train to do not the 100% foundational work, but 40%, 40%, and then the additional 40%. Yes, there's now redundancy. Um, because you cannot do the clean foundation, but if you do only 40% foundation and then some that builds on it, you have something shippable. And that, that is something you need to train. And that is, again, I think regardless of shape up or not. This visualization helps. And then this is why these roles are important, I find. But shape up enforces it maybe more than a sprint that just carries over what didn't get done into the next, right? Fair. Um, yes. Oh, and, and then... Looking at the circuit breaker. Uh, and then something probably so that we really embraced at Facebook. So Oculus is Facebook. Um, everything at Facebook was behind a feature flag. And people may not know this. People are not even on Facebook.com anymore. But people um, who are on Facebook.com are simultaneously roughly in about 300 parallel A-B tests different ones like you open Facebook, I open Facebook and we see we are subject to different code paths and we are subject to three, 300 totally independent experiments. There are thousands of uh, concurrent feature flags. 
And every development happens not in feature branches, but on main branch, and you guard them with um, feature flags. So when I joined uh, Facebook, I thought that's great. They must have discovered a fantastic way to avoid that inherent complexity, you know, aspect-oriented programming or something. Who hasn't seen the code base? That's far from the truth. It's um, it's a miserable. Um, <laughs> it's a miserable mix of if statements and and different other patterns. It's very unmaintainable and really difficult if you think of it. Like if there's something at the beginning of a function or somewhere and then asynchronously somewhere else, functionality that needs to match depending on a feature branch, like this is very complex to, to get right. We do release flags as well. Um, we call them release flags to, um, with the intention to not use them for A-B testing or have them on permanently. But the, the goal is to eventually get everything that is behind a release flag released. Like there is no, we have a way to turn them on site-wide per customer, even per user, but there's no way to exclude someone. And that is intentionally, we really want to embrace that we want to ship everything, but think of it as um, feature flags. So we have these release flags and scopes are usually behind a release flag, sometimes even behind several so that we can start working on it and ship it and well, at least like complete the engineering work. But we have at that point not yet exposed all customers to that behavior. And the smell that comes from this is that we have quite a lot of unreleased features in our code base now um, because of the socket breaker. Like mm -hmm. um, at the end of a cycle, we sometimes um, determine that this was not meeting our quality bar or the feedback we got, another flaw of shape up, by the way, like I think feedback comes way too late. And then at that point, this, uh, the team has been dismantled. Um, so like we learned that this is not um, delivering what we anticipated. So we don't turn it on at the very least, not for all of our customers. Maybe the one customer that is satisfied with it, great, they will run with it. But we know at some point we need to get back. And then it's up to an, a future betting table, whether or not we decide to fix it for real or as it happens quite often, as you can see from the many release flags that didn't um, um, have been like lifted, they just sit there. And maybe um, the problem here is that you have a lot of unnecessary complexity now in the code. Um, you need to maintain all of this. I believe this is true for software in general. Anything that is not perfect is an ongoing cost and maintenance. Here, it's particularly sad because you don't pull value from it. The only value is that it's easier for a future project to continue working on it. But yeah, the circuit breaker works for us um, by release flags. And by having the unambitious scope, we oftentimes have at least something shipped towards the goals of a pitch. Maybe not the most um, valuable thing, but at least something. And then oftentimes, especially like the last one or two scopes, sometimes we broke in parallel on those. Um, are behind the release flag. Before we wrap up the building side, oh, there's one last thing I wanted to okay. ask you on the building side, and then I have about two questions left for you. So uh, thank you so much for taking all this time <laughs> with me. On the on the building side, um, you also shared notes with me um, that talked about a replacement for the hill chart. That's not actually a replacement, earlier. but like um, that's really sad. So when we started off 
um, the people who have uh, read the book and in particular have used Basecamp before were saying, oh, it doesn't, it will not really work for us because we don't have hill charts. And I said, well, I mean, the hill charts aren't really not the most critical piece. It really helps conveying the idea that everything is an uphill battle until you've found a solution for a particular scope. And then it's easy if you have digested this, we don't need a hill chart, but then still the team was pressing. So we have at Memfold something which we call MAD, Memfold Awesome Day, which is a day uh, every cycle where the entire company, not only engineering, works on whatever they like to improve their own skill sets or company or anything but they work, like their daily work. And I took one of those to implement a hill chart tool, like really fancy. It looked nice, like drag and drop. Like there are many tools out there, but they, they don't look so great. And also I wanted a tight integration with our uh, issue tracker. So and then we had basically one ticket representing a project and you saw that image and then you click on it and you can like do like all the fancy movement, add new scopes, move them around, add like a few notes, send it, and you could embed this to Notion with like web embeds. And at a point I thought, oh, maybe we ship this as a product itself because it's so cool. Mm -hmm. And then we learned that there was not much value in hill charts outside of the team. So I initially, I shared the hill charts of the ongoing projects uh, during our all hands meeting and people without context don't know what a scope description really means. And I spent so much time making sure that the labels of these dots would not overlap and everything is legible. In the end, I learned nobody really cared, but the respective builder projects themselves. And at that point, what gives? And soon, uh, sooner than later, the team themselves lost interest in using them. Um, it was more important to use that two-dimensional um, scope visualization, which we don't have a good name for, scope map, I guess. Um, so by now, we absolutely don't use hill charts anymore and use um, the, the two-dimensional scope maps, which don't really reflect progress. So we thought about, oh, each blob there could be you know, a pie chart, or we could depict mm -hmm. it as um, showing the size shows the total effort and then it shrinks and you leave, um, as an outline, the original size, and then you can see how things basically the remainder of the work shrinks. It turned out that the team has enough context, um, to know all of this. So there is not really much there. Maybe as we grow and, um, people who do care cannot have the context anymore because it's too many projects. Maybe at that point we have to introduce something again. But for the time being, hill charts um, have no value for us. I think that's a good segue into one other question I had um, about, you mentioned this a couple of times, you are hiring, you're growing the team. There. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was wondering, since ShapeUp is kind of a niche framework and you've even taken the book that somebody could read and uh, put a totally different spin on it. Do you pay a kind of special tax now when you're onboarding people? Or how do you go about onboarding people into your process versus, you know, if they join a scrum team, they basically know what to expect, what the rituals will be and yeah. so on. During our hiring process, both engineers as well as product people are generally excited. Some of them know ShapeUp and those who don't are intrigued by the promises. So it's generally a very positive vibe that goes, that comes from it. 
After onboarding, I don't think it is too much of a change. As an engineer, as a new hire, you lean on your teammates and just there you have your tech lead. And from that perspective, it's not much different than any other methodology. You ultimately get exposed to a new um, area and the tech lead shepherds you along and you work off of tickets. So I don't think onboarding is particularly difficult. And what we do is we, again, thanks to the cycle plan, we try to level up or like um, um, expose previously builders to becoming a tech lead in a project. So we are in the process of doing this, expecting that basically everybody today needs to be the tech lead um, for this next generation of engineers that we have to hire this year. And um, so this is again uh, like a, a conscious step we are taking, but I don't think this is unique to shape up. And I really enjoy that this book exists and then our playbooks exist. And oftentimes there's, but the book says, and then we say, yeah, yeah, we tried that and that doesn't work because of X, Y, Z. So yeah, I don't see a real problem there. Um, if anything, a builder project really is uh, beneficial over classic Kanban responder work because it gives more structure. So what we try to do for new hires, engineering new hires, is to uh, put them on a builder project rather than working off of the responder board. Um, and just to stay on the topic of hiring for one more second, you mentioned in the beginning how that how you reflected uh, upon needing to hire for fitness to shape up as a as an idea, or it kind of it demands certain. Yeah characteristics yes. of somebody yes. maybe you want to speak yeah about you that. need um, a good amount of pragmatism like you cannot strive for the what i oftentimes oftentimes call the gold version like the if you had infinite amount of um resources that would be it um i i even don't believe that like if you have an, an infinite amount of resources that is not a guarantee for a great outcome i worked at facebook before and then the other one is you need for this autonomy to work you need self-driven people with like customer empathy that like think in in value they add and not so much technical only maybe that's the same thing like you don't strive for technical excellence but for good enough to meet the value and, and yeah, maybe that is the same thing, pragmatism and all of it. And, and that is not everybody's um, cup of tea. And I, I totally acknowledge that. Um, maybe, maybe I took your question wrong. Maybe there is a tax you have to pay in form of the people you want to hire. But thankfully, mm -hmm. um, um, we are very aligned at the company as to which people we want to hire. When it comes to product, for example, we have a multi-step hiring process, as, as it is, um, and we have a take-home project as part of our hiring uh, pipeline, and that is write a pitch. I want every product person, including the product designers, um, to be able, well, I mean, both, I mean, both, um, they, product managers and product designers, to be capable of shaping a solution. They need to be able to come up with solutions, and they need to be able to put it in words that are digestible within minutes. Um, like, And then we share with them the template, our template. We link to the original book as source material, and then we have a scenario that is 
not memfault actually, but something everybody can understand or should understand if they are product people. And then it's their goal to to write a pitch. So I hire for this in mind. Yeah, makes sense. And then I guess it's not so much a text though. So you were right to kind of turn that down, but a filter that you have. Yeah, um, yeah. Before I come to my closing questions, is there anything you feel like uh, we've missed um, in preparing for this talk? Do you see anything that you want to get in? Hmm. One observation is that in the early days, um, after we successfully implemented this, success being defined as we went from total everything is chaos to we can finally tackle strategical um, uh, projects, strategic projects. I think that took us about six months. Um, and after that, other teams like the go-to-market team, they wanted to adopt a shape up as well. That didn't go so well. Um, I am not too deep into that to answer why, um, but I can say that they were like intrigued by the idea and wanted to adopt it. Maybe there is something there. Um, maybe it is just um, like coincident that it didn't work for us. Um, maybe, maybe try it out. Oh yeah, we still do retrospectives, and I think that is uh, that we do that during cooldown, and that is a great source um, of ideas to refine the process and define, uh, redefine all of this. Oftentimes, that leads to new experiments we want to try. For example, project management should come from engineering, or cadence uh, needs to be altered, or um, we need um, a real debrief um, as a tool to um, inform other functions in the company. And those retrospectives, are they within the builder teams or are they across the whole cycle, everybody? So we do per builder team one dedicated retrospective. And then the responders all together do one, platform team does one, solutioning does one, and then we do a roll up. Um, so from the retrospective, we condense action items. Um, and these action items are then shared across all. But what we do... Because in order to keep the iteration kind of the same then for everybody, I guess that's where... Exactly. Going. So oftentimes, like, um, and then we, like, we have this culture at Memfold where we give um, shout outs and, and kudos um, a lot, like during all hands, we have a dedicated Slack channel for it, but that also happens during retrospective. And oftentimes, like there are learnings in the builder project that affect platform and responders. For example, it was so great, they could help us. And then it's really interesting to see how platform perceive that at the same time. And sometimes that like holistic perspective leads then only to the change in process. Right. Yeah. The responsibilities of a builder are many. I forgot to mention, but also user facing documentation, user here being another engineer, but still is part of the deliverable. So coming back to your tax you're paying, yeah, you need a well-rounded, experienced uh, crowd to, to run a successful builder project. But I think one way you are making this work, if I understood you correctly, is by having these detailed playbooks. Uh, and to be able to share the expectations very transparently with everybody in the same way. Yeah, I mean, transparency certainly is a quality of our company, but in the end, it's um, the individuals and every person um, on the company who has to meet these expectations. And I, I can imagine that this is difficult. I mean, hiring in general is difficult. I have a hard time finding um, the, the right people, but I hear that this is true everywhere. So... And, and I can, from my past experience, yes, that is true. I don't think 
if you set the goal of hiring experienced uh, people with um, our particular needs, I think it would be equally challenging with or without ShapeUp. Makes sense. All right. Second to last question. Oh, wow. What advice... <laughs> You can be quick on this one, but kind of what tidbits of advice would you give other teams thinking about trying shape up? And maybe the way to think about it is if, you know, what might you tell Heiko who is living in a parallel universe that's off by one or two years? Is there any shortcut you could have taken to where you are today? Or is it really, did you have to go through all this pain of iterating your way here? I don't call it pain. And I'm not saying that we are converging to the one truth. Um, the team is changing and so are the preferences. I wouldn't be surprised if in a year from now we are closer to something we have unsuccessfully tried in the past that is now working. So I would totally embrace iteration, not um, to reach, you know, enlightenment, but to embrace the nature of um, an ever-changing environment. Uh, what would I tell myself? I think independently from ShapeUp, for me, this whole product thing was really new and still is. Uh, when I'm interviewing people, oftentimes these people have more experience than the like actual product work than I have, and if counted in years. Um, embracing that uh, when you're when you're only thinking about ShapeUp, like maybe all of this sounds new to you, like just like try it out. Uh, it. It's easy to say at a company that is relatively small, uh, where you take on a lot of risks anyway, but um, I would generally um, advise people to just um, try out what they, if, if there's something broken and there's a need to make a change, um, I found ShapeUp as a viable foundation next to more popular approaches. Lastly, I'm always on the hunt for interesting book recommendations uh -huh. that go beyond the most recommended product management, product development books. Uh, so my question to you is, what book can you recommend yeah. to our audience that has had an impact on your work, but that's from a different domain, maybe? Yeah. If there's something. So let me first start, like you asked me that question, uh, like you sent me that question last night, and like I have some books in the, like uh, here. Um, I actually, the first thing that come to my mind is actually a product um, book. It's um, called Product mm -hmm. Roadmaps Relaunched. Um, and this is great material if you want to rethink roadmapping um, and don't treat it as a uh, delivery schedule. But because it's um, on the topic, I will leave it out still, a uh, brief recommendation. And then the next thing, I'm an engineer by heart, a book I read probably 15 years ago, Dreaming and Code. This is, it was really fun. I think for some people, especially the first 200 pages or so, uh, a bit dry, very um, technical. Um, Scott Rosenberg describes a real world um, project that arguably falls in that category of infinite resources, infinite time, and it didn't go nowhere. And maybe I should read it again. Again, it's been like 15 plus years. I think from my perspective today, they were lacking strong product in that journey and i think a strong like product team would have um pushed like this is a spoiler it didn't really go nowhere this is a open source project by now and you can totally use it but it's not popular i think proper product work could have made this a success but then there's one thing i really want to share and it's not a book it comes from my hiring work last night i was reviewing one of these take-home um projects and the candidate I closed with a section, so like usual pitch, 
and intertwined with thought process. But then the last page was, so I ran this prompt, our description of the problem, which is not even in the shape uh, pitch up uh, form, but like just the prompt, the general thing, and then you need to transfer it into the problem statement and um, like value and all of it plus solution. I put that through chat GPT. Like we all have heard about AI in the recent um, months and um, its advancements. So the candidate um, also put what AI had produced uh, based on the prompt. And at first I was in disbelief because that was a pitch better than some I have read produced by humans. So I went over last night to ChatGPT and actually tried that ourselves using our interview pitch uh, prompt. And it's amazing. So it doesn't even teach, like that's without our template, just the problem prompt. And it says product pitch. It doesn't even mention shape up. And the structure is surprisingly close to um, the structure um, that spit out in the end, surprisingly close to a pitch format, including solution and problem statement. And then for those of you who haven't tried this out, you can actually push a button to re-render, um, like reiterate and propose different mm -hmm. um, answers. And each time I was reading through that, of course, like sometimes the format diverged more uh, from ShapeUp than, than other times. Each time I learned something, so um, that was maybe, a, they literally, that was a rabbit hole section uh, or a value section. And each time there was something, oh, interesting. That is a really interesting point here. So I will make uh, a change to how I'm going to work on pitches where I will use um, ChatGPT to, um, as an augmentation to my tool set to detect gaps in my pitches where um, I have basically yet another person or like um, source um, to uh, provide ideas towards that pitch um, to maybe discover blind spots that I otherwise would have missed. So that would be my recommendation. That is super interesting. I like that the augmentation was though your learning and not the, oh, I don't need to hire anymore. Oh, no. I mean, like the actual solution was not like really implementable. I mean, it was on the surface, okay, but like it's not what you really need. No, I mean, it's it's great to discover gaps. And who knows, maybe in a few years, it will actually be able to do that. And then the, the focus of your work is to carefully um, craft the prompt. Um, I don't mind. Uh, but like this was um, a surprise to me last night. All right, Heiko, thank you so, so much for your time. Mm -hmm. um, where can people find you online if they want to follow up with questions or connect with you? Connect with me because they want to start a career at memfold.com. Well, that would be <laughs> that um, aforementioned website. Uh, it's, I think it's memfold.com slash careers. We are an international company um, working in uh, like West Coast where we've been found in San Francisco. We have an office in Boston, but the product team, we try to hire in the EU time zone and Berlin. So at Memfold, you will write me at Heiko at memfold.com and then personal website is heikobarons.com. I'm sure you can link uh, to that from the show notes. Yes. There's not much on it, uh, a few hobby projects of mine, um, but then um, certainly ways to reach out to me. And please do if you are interested in working with us. Cool. Thank you so much, Heiko. It was a pleasure. Thanks, David. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Heiko. I certainly did. If you like this show, it really goes a long way if you leave a favorable review wherever you're listening to this. And to find jobs at companies that work with ShapeUp, 
Bankmanfold, remember to check out shapers.builders. Again, that really is the domain. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a great day.